Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting across North America, syndicated on the radio channels and also coming to you via your podcast app, Podcasting 2.0. You can learn much more about that on our website, ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, checking in with you today, and I'm joined by David Clement, who's out there in Toronto. David, how goes it? Oh, it's uh, it's going. Um to think about uh, the to think about when we first started recording this show, literally on like the cusp of uh, of of a global pandemic, when we thought that the Australian wildfires were the extent of um, global crisis. Um, here we are on the edge of a pandemic, looking at a a. Uh, an armed conflict that could be of a scale we have not seen in decades um and so yeah it's uh it's a difficult time it's it's hard to watch what's going on uh in ukraine and i know that we talked about this at length um last episode and i know that we have a, a great segment um coming up with uh, our colleague bill um, but yeah, it's it's very difficult, and I'm I'm curious to hear what the perception is like. You're obviously a little closer to the conflict in Austria, um, and so I'm curious as to how this is being understood or perceived in in Austria. Yeah, I mean, here I I talked about this with uh, Andrew Donaldson over there on Heard Tell Radio, uh, which I know you've been on as well, and um, I think the focus here. Look, Austria's not going to do anything. It doesn't have a military that can really do anything. <laughs> so uh, just chuck that out of the equation. It's going to have to come to the more humanitarian angle and what happens. And I think my prediction, which has not really been discussed, is that we're going to get a lot of migrants here. We're going to get a lot of people. Because I'm sorry, people are not going to stay in Hungary, Slovakia, Romania. Poland, I understand... You know, it's more culturally similar. Uh, the languages, at least, are somewhat decipherable between them. Uh, but most people are going to head west. And considering Austria is much more developed, has higher incomes, uh, we're going to get a lot more people. And that kind of worries me, not because of any. I just, our labor markets are not flexible. Uh, the rules for migration are pretty strict. And I don't think people are going to be equipped to handle this. And I, I'm a bit worried about that. And, you know, if we're already at 1 million refugees right now, and they're estimating up to 5 million, uh, yeah, I mean, we did this in, uh, if, if we go back in history a little bit, you know, Hungary and uh, throughout the Balkan Wars, you know, there were a lot of migrants who eventually came to Austria. You know, some of them went back, but still it was a it was a big change it was a big change in the makeup of the country you know different values different concepts different populations um i don't know man it's hard to it's hard to focus on all of this because i know for many people you know it's, they're just sitting in their armchairs and they're able to to wax about this and talk about what's happening here and there but you know this impacts our colleagues people that we know friends a lot of young people that i've met over the years you know that are not worry just about you know their bills they're worried about bombs hitting their homes yeah yeah they're they're worried about what what it's going to look like when they walk onto the street tomorrow morning if they if and this sounds morbid but it's true if if they wake up um 
and that's the extent of depending on where a lot of the people we know are in in Ukraine. Um, that's either what what they're dealing with now or what they expect to be dealing with um, in the near future. And so, yeah, it's pretty scary. I mean, I do want to give credit to Doug Ford because um, he had some pretty powerful words on this where he, he essentially said, look, uh, Ontario is open for Ukrainian refugees. We'll make sure you're set up here. We'll get you jobs you're like you are welcome here and we encourage like anyone who can get here to get here and i thought that that was a um that was a great statement from him um on that just because it can be very easy for politicians to to skirt some of that i don't want to use the word responsibility because it's not our responsibility um per se to take in 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 refugees but i i do think we have a a moral kind of obligation to do it and it was nice to see him echo that yeah it's um very different you know point of view uh particularly you know coming from canadian premiers and, and from american politicians and the rest um you know we also had a couple other things that happened and we'll be able to hear more on uh the situation in ukraine and, and sort of what people are doing it our colleague bill vietz who hosts the consumer podcast he conducted an interview with Ihor uh, Masakin, who is a former tax authority and uh, had various positions in the Ukrainian government and uh, now is an entrepreneur, uh, thankfully, outside. Uh, but, you know, we'll hear much more about that. Other things that happened is we had the State of the Union address in the U.S. from our Joe Biden. Yes. I don't have anything notable nor interesting. Um, I thought it was, it was fairly weak. I don't know if you had any other thoughts on that. Um, yeah, I, I, the the whole buy American nonsense is you could have taken what he said, the exact words, and had Trump read out that speech, and nobody would have thought that that was not Trump's words. And that is a huge problem. It, to me, the buy American stuff is just Trumpism... W- from the from the vocal cords of someone who is nice <laughs> and and that's that's all it was and that really bothers me because there was a lot of opposition to Trump's rhetoric on buy american and foreign products and foreign people and all of that and i don't like that joe biden seemingly is getting a pass as if when he's saying buy american um, like people knew what it really meant when Trump said it, and now they're like, there's a huge blind spot there, and that really irks me. Um, especially from folks on the left who were rightfully mad at Trump for all of his nativism, um, but seem to be giving Joe uh, a pass. I, I do not like that at all. Yeah, we haven't had any kind of sort of sea change when it comes to free trade. You know, there are many of the trade tariffs are still in place. You know, we haven't seen huge expansion there. And and you would think that the neoliberal crowd there, David, the Globe fellows, uh, you would have thought they would have had enough influence in the party. But, I, you know, it doesn't seem like much is changing there. Um, but what, I, I guess another thing related to Ukraine, uh, Russia, that I wanted to talk about is essentially how there's now these sanctions. Uh, there's obviously the large sanctions on oligarchs and the rest, uh, but sort of a, a change in the attitude towards 
Russians themselves as individuals. And uh, we're talking about access to the internet or property or, uh, I mean, I even saw the case, uh, I believe, in Canada uh, about like the Junior Hockey League or something like this, where, you know, Russians and, and Belarusian teenagers, you know, need not apply. And um, I think we're we're buying, this is the, I think Tyler Cowen called it, you know, the new McCarthyism going after the, the kind of Russians. Yeah, we have to differentiate between um, between Russian people and Putin's cronies and supporters um, because there's a lot of distance between the two. And I think we forget that. I mean, one example that we're seeing, which I think is valid, is the criticism of Alexander Ovechkin um, because he's been pressed by reporters on what is going on. And he said no more war, but his, they've kind of pushed him further. And the only reason they've pushed him further is because they know that he was a vocal supporter of Vladimir Putin. And so he has to reconcile that. And I think that that's fine. We should hold him accountable for what appear to be rather unsavory views. Um, a hockey player for the Washington Capitals. You have to, yes, yes. For the audience to, to all know. Uh, yes. And, and I... His response a bit, and I, I'm seeing this from a lot of the you know Russian celebs and the like, is like, oh, we just don't want war. Well, Navalny, who's the main opposition figure, he's been jailed by Putin. Um, you know, it was just a couple of years ago. He, he took the the flight from Berlin, got arrested immediately. He's going through this show trial. You know, he was able to get uh, a message out via Twitter, basically saying, look, it's not enough to just be against war. You know, you have to be against this war. You have to be against what is happening now, and you have to be actively against it you know you can't just say oh we don't want war you have to be against it actively and uh, he's called on uh, particularly russians to go out to the streets every day at 2 p.m and and on and on but yeah it, it is true and there's been so many just ridiculous things that are happening oh we're not going to buy uh you know russian vodka anymore you know these are things that are I don't know what we're trying. This is Freedom Fries. You know, this yeah, is not really well, helping yeah, anybody. It, it, it seems <laughs> a lot more like symbolism to some extent. I mean, I, I, so again, it depends on what the industry is. Um, so like Boeing and Rolls-Royce. Um, Rolls-Royce, the airplane engine manufacturer, um, not the uh, luxury vehicle company, um, basically cut off russian airlines from all servicing and that in terms of like the ability to fund putin's war machine is far more effective um than not selling russian vodka like i think you should have like if there are and this is again the distinction between something existing from the from the country of Russia and something that is more closely tied to Putin's ability to raise money to fund his war machine. And I that we've lost that a little bit. Um and it's really unfortunate because the right had done this for like so many people have done this for so long on other issues. Um taking it out on a people um, which is incredibly problematic given the context of Putin. And I mean, I'm not sure I'm comfortable calling him a, uh, a, a democratically elected leader of a free country. I don't think he fits the bill on any of those words. And so you're talking about punishing ordinary Russians, 
um, with like the example of the Ontario Hockey League and not wanting to draft um, those teenagers, um, you're going to punish them for the crimes of their quasi unelected dictator. And it's like, I don't know if I really like like that. And, and we've seen some some push in regards to visas as well where they want to limit visas. And I think we should actually do the opposite. I think we should take and basically say anyone with an advanced degree who wants to flee Putin's Russia, you can come here and you can live here. I mean, the the biggest way to stick it to Putin's um, war machine is to is to brain drain the economy. Give us yeah, your we, best we, and we brightest. Yeah, yeah, we'll see a lot of that and that'll be yeah. coming through. Um, sort of one leader who is uh, sort of behind some of this is uh, the Ukrainian uh, cabinet minister, also vice prime minister, Mikhailo Fedorov. Uh, so he's the fellow on Twitter who's been soliciting uh, cryptocurrency donations, which we talked about last week, and has also uh, you know, succeeded in getting Elon Musk to uh, get the Starlink satellites focused in on Ukraine to get people internet there. What a great and- move by Elon. Great move by Elon to be able to rapidly... Like- to be able to rapidly respond and be like, yes, we will do this. And then 48 hours later, things are being installed to ensure that no matter what Putin's army does, the Ukrainians will have an internet connection. Incredibly honorable thing to do. Yeah, and this this uh, cabinet minister, you know, he's uh, very digitally savvy, 31 years old. Uh, he met with a lot of tech companies over the last two years, two, three years, uh, trying to get a lot of support, more investment in Ukraine. And you know, I I can't agree 100% with everything that he's been doing. He's been calling on most of the, um, you know, large digital companies to basically ban Russian users and all. So there are a couple things, but again, it's not my country that's being invaded. It's not my people that are being killed in the streets. So I understand that. And, you know, we're dealing with a war that we just have never seen. You know, this is a war that we, we've seen only in movies. You know, we haven't seen, you know, growing battalions and contingents of tanks and all the rest and yeah it's it's a very very heavy pill to swallow at this moment obviously all the solidarity to our brothers there slava ukraini as we said last week uh dave we'll be back to talk about some other consumer choice topics uh here on the program we'll, we'll keep it a bit lighter but again tune in to that last segment uh, we'll be speaking uh, or we'll feature bill's interview uh there with the ihor masikad so we'll be right back here on consumer choice radio And we're back here on Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you guys for tuning back in here. We covered a lot about uh, Ukraine and Russia in the beginning of the program. And uh, third segment, we'll be featuring an interview that our colleague Bill Vietz did on the Consumer Podcast with Ihor uh, Masakin about more of what's happening. And obviously, everyone's been tuned in to the travesty that is unfolding before our eyes. Uh, but we want to keep it a bit lighter, focus on some Consumer Choice topics uh, one thing, David, that I wanted to discuss here as uh, is an opportune time is uh, there are some things that are a change in um, our home nation of Canada, uh, particularly when it comes to politics and a conservative uh, leadership race uh, that is heating up and uh, will, will be taking place over the n- next couple of months. And uh, there are some clear candidates uh, that are that are being chalked out. Is that right? Uh, yes, there are. Um, so I would say the 
the front runner is is Pierre Polyev, who we have had on the show. Um, there are rumors that uh, <laughs> there are rumors that uh, Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown may be um, considering a run. Um, Jean Charest, uh, former Premier of Quebec, uh, also kicking the tires. Um, and then a little further out there, uh, I would say there are some rumors, but I do not think that they're accurate, that Doug Ford may be um, kicking the tires, and then a few uh, others um, whom I don't really think have a chance. We don't need to get into all of the rumors. But, uh, yeah, it could make up for a very competitive race. Um, there were a lot of people who were pushing for this not to ha- not to be um, as, as long or prolonged as it is, um, wanting to kind of wrap this up quickly. And that is not going to be, um, what happens here. Um, and so, yeah, we will, (laughs) we will see what happens. I mean, ideally we would get whomever the candidates are. Oh, I forgot to say Leslie and Lewis also, um, considered to be one of the candidates. Um, it would be great if we could have each of them on the program at some point throughout the process to talk about what makes them different, what their vision is for, for the party and the country, um, just to hear from them. And so we'll, we'll, I'll try and make that a priority for us. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, and I, I wanted to specifically address the Jean Charest uh, candidacy. Um, cause I've heard, I heard this, I think, um, the last time that there was a leadership race, you know, perhaps that he'll throw himself in, which is, I think, crazy having lived in the Quebec, uh, that he was the premier of, uh, for many years, he was sort of the incumbent, uh, premier of the liberal party back then. And I, I just think it's asinine that he would be brought up to the level of, uh, you know, being considered a federal candidate there for leader for the conservative party. So what is the sort of English Canada take on Jean Charest at this moment, you know, obviously he's been in federal politics before he went provincial. But what's sort of, sort of the takes? I'm very confused on that. Yeah. So the the centrist take is that he could be a good centrist figure to try and unite the party. Um, that is not my view. Um, my view is that whatever Aaron O'Toole's faults were. Jean Charest is guilty of all of them plus. Um, and I don't see how you can rec- yeah, I don't see how you can ha- have a unified party moving more in the direction of what caucus just kicked out. Um, so th- I just don't think there's viability there. I think there's a huge issue with his activities as a private citizen, lobbying on behalf of Huawei um, as a, a to to essentially help them get access to our 5G network. That is a huge problem from a national perspective outside of partisan politics, but also within the party. Very difficult to reconcile that with the reality of what's going on in China, the links between Huawei and the Communist Party, and all of the nefarious things that may be happening there. Um, so, I mean, for, for me, at least that's a non-starter unless he comes out and he's like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. That was a mistake, which I don't think he would do because politicians don't regularly do that. Um, yeah, I, I, I just don't, I think that's a non-starter. I don't think there's a path for him there. And to the further extreme, 
there are some who are saying if he were to run and win, the party would split again. Yeah, th- back to I, yeah. the old reform PC days. Yeah, I think what's more, you know, sort of, I said asinine before, what was just so crazy about it is, you know, this guy is not a conservative. <laughs> I'm sorry, but Jean Charest, when he was the head of the Liberal Party, you know, there's a reason why we had this uh, Commission Charbonneau, we had all these allegations of corruption. Um, you know, there were many, many allegations about him actually personally accepting envelopes full of cash from, you know, contractors and guys affiliated with the mafia. Uh, not a government that reduced cost at all. We saw that the, the debt of uh, the Quebec state, you know, rising rapidly under his rule. Anything that he did was always lip service around election time. And that's why I always find it strange that it just seems like it's a token, you know, we'll get the token French speaker guy up there. Let's get the token Quebecois. <laughs> um, yeah. And he's very skilled, very bilingual, you know, obviously speaks with uh, no accent, neither language and, and a lot of people, for some reason, are taking him very seriously. I even saw Globe and Mail uh, today. They had a, sort of a profile on him. He's uh, apparently making the rounds with many different MPs and senators and all the rest. And, I, you know, during the entire time that he was in office, you know, I was but a young college student, but I was wholeheartedly opposed to this guy. <laughs> Everything he was doing was just insane, and there was always a better way to do it, and he was not a friend of, you know, whatever you might call it small government philosophy uh he was the the absolute worst and and you know he caused the student strikes luckily i was able to miss that by a year so i didn't have my classes shut down um you know and a lot of people say that he was the austerity premier but yeah it was it was too late and it wasn't enough and i don't know just a lot of stuff i'm i'm just very surprised again the reality of quebec politics does not translate federally and a lot of that context is kind of lost. So, you know, it's not, not, not really there. Yeah, and, and this is the thing, is that in order for him to be palatable nationally among conservatives, he will have to reinvent himself. But we just had a trial run in what that looks like with Aaron O'Toole, someone who was a red Tory who then reinvented himself as a true blue conservative to win the leadership race, who then pivoted kind of back in between the two positions and left everyone wondering where he stood. And so I don't think Charest's record is enough to get him to to convince conservatives to vote for him in a leadership race. And then what is he going to have to do a 180 on um, or concede on in order to do that? And I mean, my own preferences here, the only way I would even remotely want to give him a look is if he goes back on 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 Huawei um, and reconciles that. If he comes out against Bill 21, which he's not going to do in Quebec, um, if he were to take some unorthodox position like being against supply management, showing that he maybe is a bigger thinker than... Um, then he appears at this moment. That would that would make me maybe give him a look. But other than that, there's no way I if if I'm a conservative member that I'm looking at this guy thinking he's what the party needs to to maintain party uh, unity. Nor is he what he needs to win a a general election. Yeah, and on every consumer topic, uh, he's terrible. 
Uh, there's a lot of things that he would discuss and talk about. And yeah, I'm sorry, but the uh, the liquor store is still owned and controlled by the government. <laughs> there's still a huge amount of spending and, you know, not much uh, really changed for the positive. You know, and I actually one of my first written articles that I had I'd put to get put out in French uh, was was actually in uh, endorsing, you know, the opposing party, the brand new Coalition Avenir Québec, uh, which is now in power. Um which I kind of regret, <laughs> considering how they've acted during the pandemic. Uh, but at the time, it was made up of you know center right, uh, small government folks, and all the rest. And there was a you know, merger with another party. But yeah, the you know these ideas. I would hope that this stuff can be settled soon. He seems to me just to be like the the token French guy who can <laughs> speak competently in English and, and do some of this stuff. And I, I just want to see some of the real issues uh, being discussed. And that's why it's interesting to see Poilievre and what he's able to do. It's interesting to see, you know, the narrative changing on housing and how this is actually being a conservative-led, you know, idea because, you know, not many people of our generation in big cities can afford to buy anything at all. And that's like a huge concern. I mean, this is, for our parents, it was, you know, they are able to buy this property and it's sort of their retirement plan. We don't have anything like that. Yeah, and, and the way I frame it, um, so I'm still friends with probably 12, 15 um, of, of my group of friends from high school, which is unique, um, but it gives me a very good lens into how other people are living outside of the political bubble that I otherwise live in. And I can say pretty confidently so we're all early 30s. People are starting to have families, um, which is around the time that their parents had them. And all of us are moderately successful. We have careers. We're all doing well. Not one of us, uh, regardless of their income status, lives or owns a home equal to or greater than the house they grew up in. And so you can have oh, wow. uh, you can have a thirty year old, thirty two year old who makes a lot more adjusting for inflation than what their parents did at thirty or thirty two, um, who has just started a family who cannot even remotely come close to affording the type of house um, that they grew up in, and I think that highlights that it's it's. Um, it is a real problem that needs real attention. And I think um, that if a whoever the conservative leader is can narrow in on that, there are a lot of millennial voters who maybe never voted conservative or never voted who that would speak to them. And they'd be like, yeah, you know what? This is actually like I tried to go get pre-approved and what I'm pre-approved for on a mortgage buys me a one-bedroom uh, studio apartment. Um, and I need space, like we want to have a family, et cetera. And it's like, okay, well, that might speak their language and, uh, and, and, and help the conservatives make some inroads into demographics that they may, may not have always um, done well with. And this is a problem that's across liberal democracies, across the U.S., across Canada, and even here in Europe. I mean, uh, the number of people that I know who used to live in the city and then they're finally able to buy something— well, they're only able to afford it out in the countryside. So, you know, these people are hightailing it out to uh, to the wilderness, you know, to have their little, uh, you know, their little square plot of land. And uh, this is uh, not a good turn for our, our generation. There's a lot of different things to look at. I know that 
Consumer Choice Center will be doing a lot in the next couple of weeks and months to address this because it is a huge issue. And you know, there's a lot at fault. You know, there's the inflation numbers that we're hitting every day. There's uh, all the money printing. There's all of the the central bank policies. Uh, you know, we are talking about bank sanction, uh, sanctions when it's coming to to Russia. And oh, look at all these amazing banks. But you know, there's a the central banks have been uh, leading us astray here for a while. And uh, hopefully, we don't keep our eye off the ball because that's still very important if we're talking about people's livelihoods mm-hmm. and uh, ability well, to save for the future. Uh, yeah, I mean that goes back to inflation. A lot of people wrongly say that like oh it's like wealthy people complaining about inflation and it's like well inflation hurts the poor the hardest i mean when food prices go up 10 percent, yeah am i able to gut the increase in costs yes uh is someone living at the poverty line able to do that no um and so those those folks often get left behind in this conversation and they're the really they're really the ones who are shouldering most of the burden. Yeah, it's going to it's going to be tough for uh, particularly those uh, who are trying to go up that economic ladder. There's so many different steps that they can take. Uh, but hopefully we can empower them a little bit. You know, we're working on your behalf as much as we can uh just with our not just with our program but also with our work at the Consumer Choice Center. Uh, so we're going to have some more stuff for you guys next week. Um, we'll have uh, the interview coming up. Our colleague Bill was able to conduct. Uh, in the meantime, David, wish you a, a great weekend, and uh, look forward to talking to you again on the uh, on the program soon. Until next week. I am joined today by Igor Masyakin. Uh, he is uh, from Ukraine. He uh, is at Cheveningen uh, Scholar uh, living in London. He studies international tax law at QMUL. He uh, works for the uh, Ministry of Finance and he was previously at the State Tax Service. We wanted to ask him a bit about his personal situations but also his view on uh, sort of where we are at in this conflict and sort of what the European response has been and should be. So uh, first of all, Igor, uh, how's it going? How are you doing? Hello. Uh, so I am quite uh, worrying about situation. Uh, um, I, uh, luckily, my family is now safe. Uh, they are in the western Ukraine. You know, this is uh, not the first time we had to flee because of the war. Uh, I was born in the city of Donetsk, which is in the east of Ukraine, uh, which was occupied by Russia in 2014. Uh, And um, in 2014, my family had to flee uh, to Kiev. So in this time, uh, again, uh, we had to pack all our uh, all our uh, stuff and uh, get a luggage and move to western Ukraine. Uh, but uh, uh, now I'm quite um, quite uh, not worrying about them. Uh, they're in a safe place uh, as well as uh, lots of my f- uh, friends. But unfortunately, some of my friends are now in Kiev and in Kharkiv, which uh, uh, are the cities under the alt- artillery strikes of uh, Russian forces, uh, and I'm really uh, concerned and worried about uh, how they're doing, and I'm contacting them every day, uh, so um, hopefully they're safe, but uh, uh, every day is uh, really a, a great uh, challenge and a great uh, day of worriness. 
can absolutely imagine and i and i hope that your family uh, will be will be well uh, a lot of people uh, have also uh, left uh, ukraine altogether to the neighboring countries as people going to moldova romania um, also slovakia hungary and poland are, are places i have friends of mine as well that that, that left you ukraine uh, that way um, we will also by the way for those of you listening, uh, there will be uh, links in the description of this podcast with different charities that you can support uh, to either help the humanitarian or military uh, aid to Ukraine in this fight against Russia. Um, so, Igor, um, how give us sort of a chronology how this happened for you when you uh, when you first got the, the, the news? How, you just got a notification on your phone. How was the communication with your with your family and friends? How has that kind of played out for you personally? Well. Um that's kind of an interesting situation for me, I, I think quite a unique, because uh, as the political analyst, uh, analyst I uh, traced the situation alongside the Ukrainian borders uh, uh, since the August of 2021, and we, in our report uh, of our think tank, Solid Info, we highlighted uh, the activity of the uh, Russian troops, the concentration, and uh, the activity of uh, Russian prox pro-Russian proxies uh, in the Donetsk and Lugansk regions, so-called Donetsk and Lugansk People Republics. Uh, and uh, we already, uh, back in uh, September and October, highlighted the high risks of the uh, conflict and uh, in December we started to qualify it as an imminent uh, so, in January, we uh, went. Uh, we issued our scenario how this war could happen. Uh, so we were right about the artillery strikes. Uh, we were right about the artillery strikes and uh, the missile strikes, uh, which uh, Russia uh, started initially uh, at the start of the conflict. Uh, because uh, we analyzed not the experience of the 2014 campaign, we analyzed how Russian uh, militaries um, behaved in uh, Syria. Yeah, because uh, you know that situation in Syria drastically changed uh, when Russia uh, involved uh, in in favor to Assad, and uh, uh, the station has changed because of the uh, air forces and their uh, missile and artillery strikes. So, uh, and uh, we, but we could we, even we couldn't imagine that. Uh, uh, Kiev, Kharkiv, Lviv, Vinnytsia, uh, all uh, which are situated not only in the north uh, and center uh, of Ukraine, but also in the west of Ukraine, will be um, bombed by the missiles. So uh, this um, uh, our scenario uh, covered the limited operation in uh, starting in uh, Donbas region uh, with joining the. Russian troops uh, from the North Crimea uh, and maybe the landing operation uh, in Odessa and Nikolaev in the south of Ukraine. Uh, so in reality we have the following situation that Russian troops uh, are moving to, uh, to, from all the fronts, from the Belarus borders, from the uh, uh, East uh, northeast uh, boundaries and from the proxies uh, in Donbass uh, and uh, from Crimea, um, and 
as we understand the estimations of the um, of the western country countries uh, didn't uh, cover didn't didn't cover uh, didn't expect that uh, ukrainian forces will uh, will resist so fearful and so effective uh so uh, you we can we can uh, remember that uh, the first two days there were um offers to president zelensky to um evacuate from kiev but uh, we now we can see that he uh he's still in kiev he's still with people he's still with his militaries and uh, it's um, a really a good example how uh, a person, uh, a role of person in history can affect the whole conflict, uh, the whole uh, um, chain of events, because um, by doing this he really inspired all the people, all the militaries, and uh, now the uh, sociologists uh, can um, analyze that his uh, uh, approval uh, rating is uh, 91%. Uh, so that's the highest and uh, uh, all the Ukrainians uh, are being um, so highly motivated to beat the Russian uh, aggressors, Russian occupants. So even usual people uh, oppose uh, Russian militaries. There are some stories uh, which are uh, really fascinating. For example, uh, when the Russian troops went through the village, uh, they uh, tried to enter the, uh, some old woman's house to get food from her because they were hungry. Uh, you know, actually, the Russian militaries, they have poor provisions of the food. Uh, and we will talk about that later, how the operation weren't planned in details so they took that food from that woman women and uh, uh, she uh, offered them tea or uh, some drinks and she put uh, some medicine there so they went to the uh, wc and she set them on fire i mean this example uh, it's not a joke because firstly when i heard that i thought that's kind of a joke but this example is um, uh, highlights how Ukrainian um, people, just ordinary people, uh, oppose, resist. Uh, there are, maybe you heard about the biggest nuclear power plant in uh, Energodar. It's Zaporizhia. Um, it's near the east of Ukraine uh, on the Dnipro River banks. So Russians want to occupy this city to get control over the nuclear power plant, uh, actually to blackmail Europe uh, about the new Chernobyl uh, catastrophe that it can be done. Uh, that's why uh, we can't let them do this, uh, seize this, this city. So ordinary people of Energodar city, they um, started to block the roads uh, block Russian tanks, Russian militaries, not to uh, let them enter the city. Uh, these are really fascinating example how uh, all the people uh, unified in uh, resistance to Russians. And um, uh, last but not least, uh, before the war, before the full-scale war started, because the war started back in 2014, so before the full-scale war started, uh, we had kind of uh, uh, 20 or 25 percent of pro-Russian population, uh, usually in the east of Ukraine, it's Kharkiv, it's uh, um, Donetsk region, and uh, in south, in Odessa, Nikolaev, and now 
uh, now there are no pro-Russian population anymore because Russia bombs uh, our pro-Russian people our uh, Russian-speaking uh, Ukrainians. Uh, so um, I don't know how Putin, uh, he, he, um, he always uh, uses his rhetorics about the uh, Russian world, Russian, uh, Russian uh, based world. Uh, so he now demotivated people who were, who were uh, maybe kind of a had some uh, sentiments about Russia because of their age, because they remember the Soviet Union time. But now all the people in Ukraine of uh, any age, uh, they are uh, they clearly understood what does really Russian world means. Uh, and uh, this is a really uh, um, uh, do you, you uh, certainly remember when Winston Churchill once uh, after the World War II said that the fascists of the future will call them anti will call themselves anti-fascist. So uh, Russia uh, uses this rhetoric that Ukraine uh, is a Nazi country and uh, uh, Russia should uh, invade to um, purge Nazis uh, from the uh, from Ukrainian government. First of all, our president is, uh, by his nationality, he is a Jew, uh, and uh, his grandfather uh, took part in the Second World War against Germany. Uh, lots of our people, our um, grandfathers, uh, our great grandfathers, took part in the Second World War. We respect their uh, their memory, and. Uh, what you mentioned, what you mentioned there, is very interesting because part of this this idea that uh, that that Ukraine has this this far right influences has been part of the the Russian propaganda all throughout. It seems now um, that with the war, Ukraine is certainly winning one war, and that is the information uh, uh, distribution. Did Ukraine has been excellent? Well, ministers and 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 and, and pundits have been excellent at getting information out there and countering that. Do you th do you see this? as um, uh, Europe having the opportunity of waking up to what has been Russian propaganda for, for many years? Is this, is this the moment where, unfortunately, it took a war for many people to realize um, which side they should have been standing on? Yeah, you know, better later than never, actually. Uh, but uh, during this, uh, these years, uh, Russia uh, received lots of uh, lots of dollars, like uh, from the uh, from the experts of its oil and gas, and used this uh, this uh, cash to corrupt uh, officials in the West, to corrupt some uh, experts, to corrupt, to create, establish its own media empire, to brainwash uh, people, ordinary people throughout the globe. Uh, you know this uh, Russia today as uh, Putnik and other uh, propaganda means. Uh, so lots of uh, lots of uh, prominent Western officials uh, are connect closely connected with uh, Russian uh, government or government uh, companies. You know the example of the former Prime Minister of France François Fillon. You know the example of former. Chancellor of Germany Gerhard Schröder. Uh, these are just uh, 
prominent examples, but there are lots of people who are uh, in the middle uh, of this pyramid, lots of them. So I think that uh, now uh, West should not only uh, give assistance to Ukraine, uh, either military or financial, but also uh, there are there is some homework for European officials and even US officials to do to um, make certain uh, outcomes from this situation, to analyze, to assess. So thanks again to our colleague Bill Vietz of the Consumer Podcast for lending us that interview. Obviously, he was able to get the stories on the ground from what's actually happening in Ukraine. Uh, thank you to Bill. You guys can listen to the Consumer Podcast. Uh, we'll link to that on our program. Until next week, this has been Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back next time. Darkness nearly drowned me. Sunlight low, though it burned my eyes.